those of you who are new, uh, we started a series a few weeks ago on the book of Esther. We're calling this series Wonder Woman. The thing is, for those of you who've been with us through this series, though, you might be wondering, okay, you've called this Wonder Woman, but I haven't seen much of the woman in this series, and I haven't seen much wonder yet. So where are those? Well, you're going to get a glimpse of both of those things today. If you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Esther chapter 4 in the Old Testament, Esther chapter 4 in the Old Testament. If you are new here, it's okay. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen. But if you're a regular here, it is not okay that you don't have a Bible. You need to have a hard copy or a digital copy of the Bible so that you can follow along Make notes so that when you go back to read it yourself, you can remember what we talked about. All right, so let me just give you a little review. We're, uh, excuse me, we are in ancient Persia during the exile of the Jewish people. Xerxes, or in some of your Bibles it might read Ahasuerus, is the king. One notable facet of the book of Esther is that there is no mention of God in this book, none. His name is never mentioned. There's not even a miracle in this book. It's the only book in the Bible like that. And yet, by the end of the book, when you, when you look back over it, you, you'll see that though he was never conspicuous, God has been all over the storyline of this book from the very beginning to the very end. In chapter 1, king by the name of Xerxes, his wife, Queen Vashti, stands up to his tyranny, and Xerxes banishes her from his presence. To refine a replacement queen, in chapter 2, all of the beautiful young versions of Persia are rounded up and thrown into what I called last week a B.C. version of The Bachelor. And the one who Xerxes chooses is a Jewish girl named Esther, though, and this is important, he doesn't know that she's Jewish. Chapter 3, the king promotes a man by the name of Haman, who in turn out of a long-standing hatred for the Jewish people, convinces the king to issue an edict to have all of the Jewish people in Persia killed. Okay? That's where we've been. And that's where we're going to start now. Chapter 4, verse 1, we'll pick up with the news of the edict having been spread all over Persia. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, in other words, the edict that has been issued and the amount of money that was being paid the silver that was being paid to sell out the Jews. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, that might seem to you like an like a, you know, overly dramatic temper tantrum, but the Jewish people were very expressive people emotionally. And so when they were upset about something, it was part of their culture not to hold that in. You know, they expressed it publicly. By ripping their clothes, putting on sackcloth, which was coarse and, and uncomfortable to wear, and then they would pour ashes over their head. Now, in America, we're not very expressive, but often people will wear black, let's say, as a sign of mourning. Well, it's kind of the same idea. You can empathize with Mordecai here. And this is a terrible thing that has happened. And it's, by the way, it's not just Mordecai. Look at verse 2. But he, Mordecai, went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, you get it, right? I mean, Haman is Hitler-like 
ordering what amounts to a, a holocaust of the Jewish people. And so this is a terrible time for the Jewish people. Now, I want to just uh, have you look at the very beginning at verse 2 again, because I want to make sure that you see something, because I think it sets up the drama to come. The author says that Mordecai went only as far as the king's gate, because he says no one in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Now, here's the way this worked. The king's gate was at the bottom of a hill, and the palace complex was 120 feet higher at the top of the hill. And really, the palace complex was sort of a city within a city. All of the king's officials lived up there at the palace. Now, you've probably heard of CEOs who live in ivory towers. This is the classic example of it. Xerxes wanted nothing to do with bad news. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to see bad news. So if you were sad about something, if you were having a bad day, if the king's decisions perhaps had negatively affected the economy and maybe you lost your job or something, stay away. He doesn't want to know that. Closest you're going to get to the king was the king's gate. Xerxes only wants to hear good news, which explains Esther's actions in verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Esther has no idea, you see, of the decree that has been issued to kill the Jewish people. That's how isolated the palace was from the people whom the people in the palace governed. And so Esther thinks that her uncle has lost his mind. If Xerxes finds out that Mordecai is making such a scene, not only might Mordecai die, but so might she. So she sends a messenger to speak with Mordecai. And essentially the message is, Mordecai, the queen wants to know, what do you think you're doing? In the following verses, Mordecai explains to the messenger all that has happened. He even gives him a copy of the king's edict to show Esther so that she can see it for herself. And then he tells the messenger to relay not only all of that to her, but also this. Skip down to the last part of verse 8. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. You and I read this, and that doesn't sound as chilling to us as it would have to a person who lived in Xerxes' kingdom. Esther sends her messenger back to Mordecai again, and you'll see why that was such a chilling request. Skip down to verse 11. All of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, Esther is saying, know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So what's she saying? She's saying, Mordecai, do you understand what you're asking? This is a capital offense that you're asking me to commit. It's a well-known and long-standing policy that if you request an appointment with the king or if you barge in on the king, you will be killed. Unless in the slight chance that he extends the scepter to you. 
Likely, she's never seen that. And she says, by the way, he hasn't called me in to sleep with him for 30 days, which meant that, A, he was sleeping with other women from his harem, and B, that she might be out of favor with the king. At least that's how she's thinking. Which makes this proposition from Mordecai for her to go to the king even more dangerous. Mordecai responds back to her in verse 13. He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another, will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. I want you to understand what Mordecai is saying here. He's giving her kind of a Sophie's choice. Do you know know what I mean by a Sophie's choice? In other words, it's sort of like this. If you go to the king, you might die. In fact, probably will die. But if you don't go to the king, you will absolutely die. You choose. It's quite the choice to make, huh? Can you imagine wake up some morning, birds are tweeting, looks like a beautiful day, you're thinking to yourself, this is going to be a really nice day, probably like most other days. Before you even have time to eat breakfast, this is what you wake up to, this, this challenge, this decision that you have to make. What would that feel like? That's not all Mordecai says. Look at the last part of verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, with those, those of you with Bibles, don't, don't read ahead. Do not read ahead. Eyes up here. <laughs> we'll come back to her decision in just a moment. Okay? But there's a number of very important ideas here in Mordecai's reply to Esther that I think we need to linger over because as a church with this vision up here on the wall, I think there are some things that God is going to say to us here that are critically important for us to see here in Mordecai's reply. Specifically, I want to point to three very important messages to us as a church in Mordecai's reply. There's probably more than three. In fact, I know there are more than three, but... I think these three are very important for us as a church with that kind of a vision on the wall. And so here are the three messages. I'll give them to you up front. One is a message of hope, one is a message of vision, and one is a message of grace. Hope, vision, and grace. And let's just start with the first one, hope. Let me just summarize it this way. Here's the hope. Because God exists, everything has a purpose. Because God exists, everything has a purpose. You see, without ever mentioning God's name, what Mordecai is proposing to Esther is that it is not random chance that she is the queen of Persia at this point in time. It's not an accident. Instead, what he's proposing is that God intentionally put her where she is. And then it may be for this very moment that she's there to save her people. 
Now, this is very important because I, I don't know if it occurs to you this morning or not, but this is the question that philosophers and scientists and artists and just everyday people have been asking throughout all of human history. Is there any purpose to life? Does my life have any purpose, any meaning at all? And many people uh, have concluded that uh, life has no purpose or meaning. For instance, if any of you remember the Shakespeare that you read in high school or maybe college, Macbeth comes to the conclusion that life, he says, is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The French philosopher Voltaire said that all we are is tormented atoms in a bed of mud. How do you like that? Here's a rock, a bunch of atoms. Here's you, a bunch of atoms. What's the difference? None. Except you're tormented and the rock isn't. That's, that's the only difference. But what Mordecai is saying here, what the whole book of Esther says, and then, of course, what the rest of the Bible argues, is that there is indeed purpose in meaning to life. Because all of recorded history is subject to God's providence. Now, of course, Mordecai doesn't use the words God's providence. That's what he's referring to here. And if, if that's a new term for you, a new idea for you, let me just give you kind of a textbook definition of God's providence. Okay? God's providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward an ultimate and worthy destination, which means his will must finally prevail. Now, that's the textbook definition. Let me just kind of summarize that. Here's, here's what this means, is that God is steering human history toward a specific destination, and nothing can deter him from that destination. And everything that happens in the world, somehow, in a way that none of us could possibly understand, we could theorize, but we don't really understand, all of that somehow gets interwoven into God's plan for the world. And this includes you, by the way, your, your life. It's not an accident that you're here. You're here as part of God's process of getting the world from point A to point B. You're part of that. In fact, it means that your victories and your losses are part of that. Your successes and your failures, your good times and your bad, your suffering, even even your death all has profound meaning to it. Somehow it's included in God's ultimate plan for the world. Everything in life is filled with meaning because of God's providence. That's the message of hope here. Now, I think it's important to, to establish that because building on that message of hope, there's also this message of vision in Mordecai's reply to Esther. And here's the message of vision. Providence means that even your occupation is a part of God's ultimate plan. Even your occupation, your position in the world is a part of God's ultimate plan. I mean, think about what Mordecai's telling Esther. What, what's her occupation? Well, she's the queen of Persia. She's in the government. She has access to the king. 
He says to her, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. By the way, the, the verb, the tense of the verb uh, that is translated have come in that sentence would suggest that the word brought would be a better translation. In other words, your role as queen, living in a palace with access to the king, it's not coincidence. It's not random. God brought you to this position. And it may very well have been for this very crisis, for this very purpose. And I wonder, see, do you have, your, do you have that understanding of your occupation? What you do for a living or the position that you have in the city of Evansville. I doubt, I seriously doubt that Esther would have ever thought that her position as queen would somehow fit into God's ultimate plan. And that somehow he would, he would use her and her role to accomplish uh, his plan. I don't think she would have thought that. I, I, I don't, I think... I suspect that she didn't have that big of a vision at first. Probably she looked at her life and she thought to herself, you know, hey, I've got it pretty good here. The accommodations are great. The food's great. The clothes I get to wear are great. So I want to keep this position. I don't want to screw it up the way Vashti did. That was probably the extent of her vision for her role. And she'd been to this point, very cooperative, uh, you know, very meek, very mild, she even slept with the king to get her position. She, she didn't want to rock the boat. Maybe she even thought of her occupation, the way many people today think of occupations. Maybe she thought, maybe she thought, well, there are sacred jobs. In her job, excuse me, in her day, that would have been like the priests in the temple. Today, that would be pastors and priests and missionaries and people who work for various Christian organizations, people like me. Those positions, she might have thought, are the sacred job. Maybe you think that too. A lot of people think that way. In fact, you see this reflected often in the titles that people ascribe to me. I get something in the mail, I get an email from somebody who I don't know. It will always be addressed to me as reverend. It's a very sacred word, reverend. I hate to be called reverend. I hate that. Now, if they call me most reverend, I'm fine with that, but not just reverend. So she might have thought, Esther might have thought, there are sacred jobs and then there are secular jobs, like her role as the queen. She probably thought to herself, look, after all, I'm in a job in which there is nothing redeeming. I got here by sleeping with the king. He's a misogynistic, narcissistic pig. Nothing redeeming about this line of work. And is that how you think of your role, of your work, of your occupation? Secular? Maybe the extent of your vision for your job or your role is like Esther's. Maybe your vision is just to build your palace. Make more money so that you can spend more money so that you can live a little more comfortably. Maybe you think of your work like Esther probably did, that there isn't anything redeeming about it. It's just a job. Maybe you even think to yourself, I'd love to get out of this job someday and do something that really makes a difference for God. I've heard people say that a lot of times. 
God is speaking to you through Mordecai today. And he's telling you that you are where you are, doing what you're doing, not out of random chance, but because he has put you there. And that doesn't mean that you can't change jobs or careers. Look, if you're bored in your job or you're thinking to yourself that there might be some new challenge that you would like or some other kind of job or career that would better fit you, go for it. If, if you do, go for it. And if that's what God's, God wills, he'll put you into a new job or career. That's perfectly fine. But just understand this, that what Mordecai is telling us here is that there's no division between sacred and secular jobs. There is redemptive value in your job. Whatever your occupation is, stay-at-home mom, accountant, dentist, plumber, electrician, mechanic, graphic artist, you're doing the work of God when you do your job. It's part of God's ultimate plan for the world. And maybe you're wondering, well, what is God's ultimate plan for the world? Well, you can read about it at the end of the book of Revelation, but let me just in short say that God wants to heal all of the brokenness of this world, and he wants to restore the world to the way that he created it to be in the beginning. That's his ultimate plan. But in the meantime, God's people, no matter what their position is, are all to be working to bring healing to your corner of the world. So Mordecai wants Esther to use her role, her influence, her access to the king to work for social justice, to rescue the Jewish people. She's not a pastor. She's not a priest. She's not a missionary. She's a queen. God has brought her to that position for this very crisis. So you see, God has a much bigger vision for your work than just building your own palace. He put you where you are so that you could serve the city of Evansville. So, for instance, stay-at-home moms. As you're raising your children to be people of character, you're doing the work of God. Let me ask you, what if you took the time to find one area of need in this city to teach your children about? Let's say it's racism. Could you, stay-at-home moms... Maybe arrange playdates with other children of color or different ethnicity and teach them that all people, all people are created in the image of God and as a result have dignity. Nobody's better than anybody else. Accountants. When you make sure that money is accounted for and being used legally, you're doing the work of God. You're making sure that no one is cheated out of money. There is justice that is occurring as you do your job. Managers, the way that you treat the people that you manage is the work of God. How could you use your job, for instance, to make the workplace more fair, safe, and friendly to say, the working woman. You know, we, we said that we, you know, we're doing this series at the very same time that so many powerful men are being outed for exploiting their power so that they could abuse or sexually harass, rape uh, women. I think it was Uma Thurman came out yesterday or the day before talking about how Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein had 
um, attacked her? How could you use your workplace to make the workplace more safe and friendly and fair to the working woman? Plumbers. Every time you bring order out of chaos and bring healing to someone's plumbing, you are doing the work of God. And if you charge a fair price, you are really doing the work of God. That's part of it. You see, the social and cultural renewal that we want to bring to the city of Evansville, you know, that's the way that this vision statement on the wall will be realized. It won't just be by ministers and pastors. It will be by all of us realizing that our work is a calling. Your work is as much of a calling as mine is. And that it is a part of God's plan for the world. So God's providence means that even your occupation is part of his ultimate plan. Now that leads to the third point, which I think this is a critical point. You you hear those things, you think to yourself, well, I'll go out and I'll now start using my workplace to treat women fairly, to treat minorities fairly, I don't know, whatever. I can promise you this, that if you go out because you want to be a better person than other people, if you go out because you feel guilty, try to do those things, maybe you feel shame, you won't sustain that. I'm going to give you here the message of grace that will be the thing that can sustain your desire to serve the city of people Uh, the city, the people in the city of Evansville. Here's the message of grace. The motivation for serving the city is grace. And here's what I mean. Let's see it here in this text. Mordecai says that God brought Esther to this position. He made it happen. And if you think about it, what that means is, is that this was... This was a plan that God had before the foundation of time. So he had to create somebody who would be able to be the queen of Persia. That means that Esther didn't earn her beauty that got her in the door in the first place. God gave her that beauty. The doors that opened to her weren't of her making. She had nothing to do with Vashti being banished. The people around her that gave her good advice, she didn't put them there. God did. Her position as queen of Persia, was a gift of God's grace. That's the message underneath the words that Mordecai expresses to her. And I want you to watch what her response is. Verse 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So here's this meek, mild little Esther. You know, she hadn't done anything to rock the boat. Now all of a sudden she becomes the director of the boat. Like it's as if she realizes, you know, suddenly, look, all of this has been given to me for a purpose. Now you go do this, you go do this, I'll do this, and then I'll do this. She's, she's coordinating the whole thing. 
As I said, it's like she all of a sudden begins to realize that this is all grace. I didn't earn any of this. This has been given to me for a purpose. Therefore, I must use what I've been given for the purpose in which it has been given, even if it means that I go down in flames. And see, I, this is what I'm saying. is that Once you understand that your position, your occupation, whatever it is, is a gift of God's grace to you, there is a sustainable motivation then to use your position to serve people, to serve the city of Evansville, rather than just using your occupation to build your own palace. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You might say to me, look, Jeff, I've earned everything I have. I've earned everything that I've gotten in this life. I've worked hard, studied hard. Nobody gave me anything. I get how you feel. I do. But think about it. You didn't earn or even choose the aptitude that you have for your work. That was given to you. Those of you who studied hard and all of that, you, you... You didn't get your intellect. You didn't earn it. That was given to you. And by the way, those of you who studied hard in advanced education, college, or above, what circumstances made it possible for you to go to college or to go to graduate school? All of that was given to you. And it was given to you by God's grace for a specific purpose. And you're benefiting from that which you did not earn. Do you understand that? And you see, in this city, there are people who are broken, who cannot earn their way to healing. There are people who are vulnerable, who cannot earn safety and security. They need you to show the same grace to them that God has shown to you. They need you to use your occupation to serve them. The Jewish people were helpless to help themselves. They needed an Esther to rescue them. And there are many people here who need you to be an Esther. Many people in this city who need you to be an Esther for them. This last week, I was reading some of the news. Uh, maybe you were reading this too. Uh, a, regarding this Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the doctor for the United States National Gymnastic Team as well as the osteopathic physician for Michigan State University. Since 1992, Nasser has used his position to molest over 250 girls. According to some of the girls' testimony, Michigan State and the United States Olympic Gymnastic Committee knew about Nasser all along. But didn't do anything to stop it. No one stepped up within those organizations to rescue these girls from this doctor. Those girls needed an Esther. No one was willing to sacrifice their comfort, to sacrifice their power, sacrifice their income, their position for those girls. Would you have? You know, 
real quickly, I'm just going to tell you, the reason that people won't do that kind of thing is because their entire identity has been derived from their position. The money they get paid, the power they have, the clothes that they could wear because of that. That's their entire identity. And without that, you're nothing. That's how many people think. Would you have been an Esther for those girls? Would you have been willing to lose your job? Wouldn't it be popular to stand up and say something? Would you have been willing to lose your role on the Olympic Committee? Boy, think about what a prestigious position that is. What if you lost your job and you had to move, relocate? You love where you live. Had to relocate. Would you have been an Esther for those girls? Because if you think about it, Esther, Esther's not going to just lose a job. She's going to lose her life. Jesus had this, there's this verse in the New Testament. And in this verse, Jesus says that uh, if you want to live, you have to be willing to die. And if you're willing to die, you'll find life. And, and he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about those things that feel like life to you. Like you wouldn't want to live if you didn't have them. You've got to be willing to die. You've got to be willing to give those things up to be a person who's really alive. Let me just close with this thought. If you think about it for a minute, Esther is here to point us to a greater Esther. What did did Esther agree to do after Mordecai reminded her of God's vision for her position and that her position was given to her by God's grace? What would she have to do if she wanted to rescue the Jewish people? She would have to do two things. First, she would have to out herself as a Jew. In other words, She would have to identify herself as a Jewish. She would have to identify with the Jewish people. And then the second is that she would have to go before the Jewish people and mediate for them, be a mediator for them. To say to the king, on behalf of your love for me, please don't kill these people. Identification and a mediator. Can I ask you something? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? God in the person of Jesus identified with humanity by becoming human. And he mediated before God. In other words, he died on the cross as a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God for our sins. The only way that we could be rescued from an eternity without God. An eternity begins now. And if you don't have God, your life has no meaning. Jesus mediated. Esther. Esther's called to do that, but Jesus does it. And he doesn't just risk his life. He gives his life to procure procure favor for us in the eyes of God in the only way possible. And if we believe in him, eternal life is ours, not by anything we've done to earn it, but simply by grace. Let Let me make that point this way. If the Jewish people survived, what did they do to earn it? Like if you, you know, you're, 
random Jewish guy living out in the kingdom somewhere? What did he do to earn his life? Nothing. Esther did it for him. He didn't do anything. He didn't earn. All he has to do is believe. I'm safe. Now, he doesn't have to believe. He can walk around feeling like, you know, I've got to hide. Somebody's going to kill me. He's got, he can do that all his life. But if he believes what Esther did for him, if indeed she does that, then he's safe. If we believe in Christ, it's ours, not by anything we have done to earn, earn it, but simply by grace. And as, as I just, here's, here's the last thing. I just, I want to speak to, I want to speak to a certain group of you here today. I've said that everybody, everybody's jobs, everybody's jobs is part of God's plan, his ultimate plan. But I, I do want to say this. There are some of you here who have more power, more influence, more contacts, more money, to bring about social and cultural renewal in this city, just by virtue of your occupation. How could you use that to bring about spiritual, social, and cultural renewal in this city? I'm not talking about, please hear me, I'm not talking about just sharing the gospel at work. That's a fine thing to do, but I'm not talking about that right now. Or having the Bible study at work, that's a fine thing to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about using your position to serve the people of the city of Evansville to address a major need in this city to help heal the brokenness of this city. How could you do it? Is there someone in this city who, like the Jewish people or like the victims of Larry Nasser, who needs you to stand up and be an Esther for them no matter the cost. Would you just think about that today? As you watch the Super Bowl, and if the Patriots win, I promise you there's going to be one person here who needs you to come and heal my brokenness. (laughs) Bow with me for prayer, if you will. Lord Jesus, I don't know what everybody here does, and I don't know the circumstances of their work. I don't know uh, the ins and outs of it. I just know this, that there is not a person here who has a job that isn't part of your plan. Lord, would you use their position? Would you speak to them? Give them a vision for how they might use their position to help bring about spiritual and social and cultural renewal in this city and beyond. And Lord, as they, I pray that you would give them that word of vision and it would come through grace that they would understand that nothing that they have or do is something that they earned, but that it comes from you by grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the fact that you are the better Esther, the greater Esther. And that what you did for us on the cross, we believe that we are given life eternal. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.